All right. So welcome to IMLA MuniCast, where local government lawyers and legal experts come together to discuss the latest developments in municipal law. Please remember that the views expressed during today's episode are those of the speakers and not of IMLA. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in with us. My name is Caitlin Ketchen, and I am your host. Um, So today, I'm really excited to have Eric Eiselt back on. Eric is also an IMLA staff attorney, and um, he has been working on opioid litigation and uh, keeping keeping IMLA members updated on this issue. So we're really pleased to have him back. If you remember, he, he joined us a couple episodes ago. So Eric, thank you very much for joining us. Sure, Kaylin. Thanks for having me back. And do, do you want to just describe a little bit about what what you do, and just remind listeners kind of your your role with IMLA and and what you've been doing with regards to this issue? Sure, um, I'm IMLA's assistant general counsel. I edit our uh, publications, including Municipal Lawyer, which is our uh, law journal. I'm involved in some of our amicus activities, although uh, not to the same degree as you and Amanda. I've been particularly interested in the opioid issue since about uh, November of last year and been actively following it, and I head up our IMLA opioid litigation work group. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, So here we are in early June of 2018, so that's about four months since our initial conversation about the municipal opioid crisis. Uh, What's happened since then? Uh, Give us an update. Oh, well, uh, <laughs> let's see, where to begin? A lot has happened <laughs> yeah, I know, there's a lot. <laughs> uh, since January, <laughs> both regarding the MDL and um, in the state actions around the country. Definitely been a lot that's been happening uh, since our, our first conversation. So just just uh, remind me again what MDL stands for and what's been happening. Oh, sure. Right. So if you recall from our last discussion, there were hundreds of cases being filed by municipalities all around the country, right, against the opioid defendants. Um, Cities and counties and townships and tribes were suing opioid makers and distributors and pharmacies and other people that were responsible for the flow of addictive pharmaceuticals around the country. And a panel of judges in D.C., decided that it would make sense to consolidate all the cases in something called multi-district litigation. That's MDL. And it ended up before a judge, Judge Dan Polster, in the Northern District of Ohio. So Judge Polster has the authority to transfer opioid cases from any other federal court around the country into his court using something called a conditional transfer order. So I've, I've heard mixed reviews on uh, Judge Polster. I, like, I was, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Like, do you think he's doing a good job or like, like what, what are, what are well, some of the comments that people have said? Sure. I think initially people were very impressed with him because he expressed a great deal of enthusiasm for settlement. And he made a bunch of statements like, this isn't about the money. This is about saving, you know, um, 150 lives that are being consumed every day in the opioid crisis. And I'm going to do everything I can to get plaintiffs and defendants in a room together. And we're going to we're going to come up with some settlements relatively rapidly. I think that was, you know, overly uh, enthusiastic. And but he has been aggressively moving to uh, fulfill his mandate, which is to consolidate cases before him. As of June 4, so two days ago, he had issued 34 of these CTOs, conditional transfer orders, and he had moved about 800 cases into his court. And so what sort of actions has Judge Polster taken so far? So in addition to moving cases into his court, the most significant thing was that he issued a case management order, CMO, 
uh, in early April. And we were already excited about the proposed schedule that Judge Polster had described, which was that he wanted to have a trial by September of 2019. But when he issued his case management order in April, things moved up dramatically. So he set aside several groups of what he calls bellwether cases in various categories of defendants and plaintiffs and prioritized them. And the first group of three bellwether cases, they're all Ohio cases, will go to trial on March 18, 2019. So, I mean, 10 months from now, we'll be in trial. And so that meant that amended complaints in those cases had to be filed by April 25, and defendants had to uh, file their motions to dismiss in those bellwether cases by May 25, so 10 days ago. And can you talk to us a little bit more about those amended complaints? Why, Why are you saying amended? Oh, Well, the reason they were amended is because one thing Judge Polster had also required was that the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, would make available its ARCOS database. And the ARCOS database is a very detailed record of which manufacturers sold which drugs through which distributors through which pharmacies all around the country. So it's very granular data. And previously, that data had been withheld by the DEA because it contains confidential information that the parties didn't want to be making available to one another. One pharma company didn't want the other pharma company to know where its you know, best sellers were being sold and so on. So they had to come up with a protective order and they derived one. And then that ARCOS data was made available to um, all the plaintiffs. And in addition, Judge Polster decided that all the data, all the evidence that had been collected by the city of Chicago, which if you recall from our last discussion, was one of the very first jurisdictions to bring one of these opioid cases back in 2014, all that evidentiary record was now made available to all the plaintiffs. So they had a bunch of new material to work with, and um, a number of them wanted to amend their complaints to add new defendants and um, reference new data from the ARCOS database. And so that's why they amended their complaints, and they had to file them all on April 25. In in other words, the, the, the three bellwether cases, just this test group of cases. And how did the defendants respond? Well, so the defendants, like I said, had to file their motions to dismiss on May 25. And they raised a bunch of defenses. A lot of them were familiar, like the absence of proximate causation, that there's too many, you know, intermediate steps between between them and people dying or becoming addicted. The fact that there were learned intermediaries, doctors, who actually did the prescribing and they were the, you know, necessary uh, step. Of course, the fact that the FDA has um, authority over pharmaceuticals and approved them. And so really, if anybody should be taking action, it should be the federal government and the localities are preempted by the FDA and that sort of thing. And then there were a couple of novel, I thought, um, arguments involving standing, involving jurisdiction. They argued in one of the cases that the opioid crisis is a matter of, quote, statewide concern. And so that's something that can only be brought on behalf of the entire state, and that can only be done by the attorney general, and that these municipalities were overstepping their, their bounds and taking, you know, taking actions that they had no authority to do. And then there was, uh, they also argued another, another case, the Chicago case, which is back in the fore, that um, Chicago had demonstrated false claims, in other words, that, that they had reimbursed um, organizations for ineffective or improper drugs because the city was continuing to reimburse for opioid usage. 
So, you know, how can you be complaining that you've been spending money on something that's harmful if you're still underwriting it? So those were some interesting additional defenses that the defendants raised in their motions to dismiss. I do want to talk a little bit about the schedule going forward. So I don't have the exact schedule going forward except to say that there are tranches of additional bellwether cases, some of them involving hospitals, some of them involving tribes, and they all have their own schedule and they're all sort of going to roll out in the next um, month to two-month period with equally rapid um, amended complaint, motion to dismiss um, schedules. And then uh, <clears throat> Judge Polster just issued an order regarding depositions, for example, on May 31st. And he said that the plaintiffs in these initial cases can take a total of, I think it's 420 depositions because there are 21 separate defendant family groups. If you, if you list all the names of all the primary defendants out to manufacturers, distributors, and pharmacies, and so on. So there's 20 depositions per <laughs> defendant family, <laughs> and then defendants can take 120 depositions, and the depositions can't be more than seven hours each. And, um, you know, so there's this process underway, and there's going to be a lot of activity um, and a lot of orders being generated, uh, you know, from now through the end of the year, without a doubt. Do you have a sense of how they arrived at those numbers, the the 420 depositions and the, like, no more than seven hours? Uh like, do you have a sense um, of the process no. they went through? Although the order itself, which is relatively short and curse, cursory, terse, <laughs> um, <laughs> references sort of the, okay, each side has proposed ridiculous, you know, levels. I'm sure the plaintiffs wanted a million depositions and the defendants wanted one. So, right. um, but he doesn't really reference how he came to what seems to be fair in his mind, but he says, this is it. This is what we're going with. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, you can tell me how you're going to allocate your depositions among who, but if you don't do it otherwise, for example, in the case of the um, defend the defendants, they're going to get, you know, um, 40 depositions for each of the three bellwether cases, period. You're not going to have the latitude to, 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 to um, you know, horse around. So he's, He's taken a pretty firm grip on on um, scheduling items like that. He doesn't have a lot of tolerance for um, jockeying. Is is bellwether a legal term, or is that is that just a term that they've been using in this particular case? Uh, yeah, I don't think it's a legal term beyond <laughs> the normal sense of you know a leading edge thing. But um, he he's calling these quote the bellwether cases in his own orders. And then he calls them track one, track two, track three, capitalized for the, the sequencing of, of the various types of cases and when they when they will be, um, you know, when they will be brought brought into his uh, um, to the forefront. So, and are all of all of the cases now in the MDL? Like all of the cases oh, that no, are addressing no. so just to, in, this? You know, it's easy to, right, that's a good question. It's easy to assume that everything is getting dragged into the MDO. And so I said there's 800 in the MDO now, just about. But there are hundreds of cases still in state court. Um, some states have their own MDL-type structures, like um, in New York, for example, there's a single court out in Suffolk County where all the in-state New York cases are being heard. Um, Texas even has its own MDL structure, and the defendants in the Texas in-state cases have asked to have all the Texas cases go to the Texas MDL. 
Um, in Arkansas, Arkansas filed a very novel um, complaint which aligned uh, the Attorney General, um, all the 75 counties in Arkansas and about 210 cities, all in one complaint before a state judge there. Um, in California, 30 counties formed a, a, a consortium. Um, so in, in, in Georgia, the localities filed a, a class action. But so not everything um, is in the MDL. And the Got reason it. is that a lot of plaintiffs, if you think about just litigation 101, a lot of plaintiffs don't want to be in federal court. They want to be in state court. Why do they want to be in state court? They have local juries, maybe more sympathetic communities who know some of the victims. They probably understand the court procedures and the judges and the the staff and so on, and they're just more comfortable there. So they file in-state. They want to stay in-state. They want to avoid litigating before the federal courts, and they definitely don't want to be grabbed and pulled into the MDL. And um, on the other hand, defendants generally seem to want to do what they can to remove the cases, that's the legal term, to federal court and then into the MDL where they can defend the cases, you know, more efficiently. And just a, a quick question about the state cases. What do you think the dynamic is going to be between these state cases that are going to get decided versus uh, like Judge Polster's MDL that he's he's figuring out with with a defendant? I, I think that's right. I think that's a great question. I, I don't understand. I don't see how a plaint uh, how a defendant is going to settle with some group of of, of defend of plaintiffs. Uh, unless all, uh, you know, all of them, or at least all within a particular jurisdiction, have agreed. I mean, if you if you think you've settled with, you know, the state of California and all their cases in the MDL, and then there's 13 other ones hanging out there in state court, um, it seems like you have to have some common uh, resolution, or at least uh, an understanding internally in terms of your appetite and uh, financial <laughs> ability to pay settlements, knowing knowing how to, you know, leave some of your powder dry for these other settlements that will come down the pike. But I imagine there's going to be a great deal of pressure to um, coordinate settlement discussions among these various jurisdictions with the MDL having a pretty important role. But I, I don't know. But that's that's a great question. I can't imagine that they will just go off and settle haphazardly in one jurisdiction and leave everything open in other ones. So, Okay, so what do what do plaintiffs do in states where none of the major defendants are headquartered? Can you talk yeah, a little so, bit about that? Um, sure. The, the primary mechanism that, that enables a defendant to move to federal court is called uh, complete diversity, right? That's um, 28 U.S. Code Section 1332. And it says that in civil actions where there's more than $75,000 in dispute and um, the parties are diverse, meaning from different states, then um, the federal district courts have original jurisdiction over that civil dispute. So in cases like – sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and just just back up a hair, uh, maybe if if there's some yeah. folks that are listening that are not attorneys, what we're talking about right now is jurisdiction, which which is essentially like the the court's power to hear a case. So when we talk about whether or not right. there's jurisdiction, uh, we're talking about whether or not a case can be heard in a particular court. And so just to, just to bring you up to, to speed just a little bit, and so I like what what we're what I'm what I'm asking Eric here is is what plaintiffs that are in states where 
you know, none of the major like pharmacy companies are like, how do they, how do they get jurisdiction in these types of cases? So how do they get the court to hear their case? So just, just a quick aside. Because you're revealing your knowledge of the jurisdictional um, requirements because you're saying if you don't already have a defendant in your state, then what do you do? And by that, we're saying that if you already have a big defendant in your state, so let's say I'm in California and McKesson, one of the big distributors, is in California, well, then there's no diversity because there's a, there, there's, there's a, a, a defendant in the same state as the plaintiff. And so that case um, doesn't have to be brought in federal court. But if I'm in a case, if I'm in Alaska, and there's, you know, none of the none of the defendants are in Alaska, I can't just walk into my state court in Alaska and sue them without them saying, hey, you know, there's complete diversity. You're in Alaska, and all of us are outside of Alaska, so no, it's going to go to the federal court. So you're asking, uh, so Caitlin, I think you're saying, well, so if you're in one of those jurisdictions that doesn't have one of these big players, these 21 families or whatever in your state, is there any recourse? What can you do? Well, yes, there is. What what plaintiffs try to do in some cases is add additional players. And if you think about all the participants in this whole terrible epidemic, it's not just the biggest players. It required local doctors, local pharmacies, local pain clinics. And so let's say you're in Alaska and you say, well, yeah, none of the major defendants are here, but uh, the Anchorage Pain Center at you know Maine and Sitka Street uh, was a huge distributor of opioids, and without them, this whole terrible crisis wouldn't have befallen us here in Alaska. So I'm adding them to the to my complaint, and now right. I have. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, well, yeah. So does that work all the time? Um, sometimes the, of course, the the big players will argue that these little additional fish, if you want to call them that, should be ignored, and the court should ignore the presence of these players, and um, preserve, you know, complete diversity and the case will be removed to federal court. And the mechanism that the defendants use to get these additional defendants uh, out of there are basically two things that have kind of a complicated sounding name. There's uh, one, one, one theory or one principle is called fraudulent joinder and the other one is called fraudulent misjoinder. And without getting into the nuances too deeply, Basically, fraudulent joinder is saying you've added somebody who has nothing to do with this case whatsoever, and there's no possibility of recovering anything from that person. You, you know, you're, 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 you're wrong to even have named that person. That is not as common as misjoinder, which is, yeah, you've added somebody that has something to do with this case, and you might have a cause of action against them, like, let's say, that individual pain clinic operator. But that person isn't necessary for you to resolve your dispute against me, the distributor or the manufacturer, is it's a it's a nice to have but not necessary to have, and so forget it uh, and and let us go on with our main case, and it's back to you in Alaska and me in New York, and we're back in federal court. So that's so, what they argue, and they've yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, so and so, are defendants successful in knocking out these added defendants or the the small fish? Yeah, um, sometimes, but uh, so I've been, I've been, initially I thought it was impossible because I, I read a case in Huntington, West Virginia, where they were suing one of the big distributors, Amerisource Bergen, I believe, and they added local doctor, local uh, prescriber, I think, and the Southern District of West Virginia said, nope, 
you know, fraudulent misjoinder, not necessary to discuss the bigger case against, you know, the big players. Um, so, no. No uh, no remand to state court. It's going to be removed to federal court, and, and boom, it's in federal court, and then, of course, it gets removed to the MDL in Ohio. Um, but there was later on a case in the northern part of, of uh, West Virginia, under the, the northern um, northern district of the West Virginia Federal Court, that came to the exact opposite conclusion and said, oh, yeah, these people are important to the overall uh, litigation, the overall understanding of the case. They need to be in here. And so you have West Virginia um, uh, plaintiffs and you have, you know, you, you have, and, and so um, and West Virginia defendants, and therefore there's no um, complete diversity, in this case, is staying in state court. And there was another case in Baltimore where they did also grant the remand to state court. And in that decision, they referenced this, this lack of consistency. And they said, wow, the Fourth Circuit, which is the circuit, if you know, you know, we have 11 circuits, I think in different jurisdictions or different states are within those circuits. They said the Fourth Circuit is, uh, is inconsistent, you know, and I guess they're looking for better guidance. But so to answer your question, sometimes the defendants can keep these cases um, from going back to state court, but many times the plaintiffs are successful in adding these additional parties and pulling them back into state court so they don't have to go to the NDL. Got it. Okay. So it seems like the answer about remanding back to state court is a maybe. Um, are there any other factors? Yes. Sure. Um, remember, one of the most important things is speed, actually, because the way uh, the MDL works, Judge Polster issues what I called a conditional transfer order. So it's conditional. The C is conditional, which means it's not effective immediately. So um, what you'll do is you'll file, the, the plaintiffs may file their case in state court. The defendants try to remove it to federal court. As soon as Judge Polster sees that it, it shows up on the federal court docket, he says, ah, I'm grabbing that Alaska case and I'm pulling it back here into Ohio. But you have a tiny window of time. I believe it's 10 days, although I'm, I may be wrong, but it's very short before that conditional transfer order becomes absolute. And in that window, the plaintiffs need to run into their local district court and make these arguments that these additional players, uh, the little fish, so to speak, are critical and this thing needs to stay in state court. So um, in addition to the validity of your argument and the, you know, the degree to which the local court is impressed with your logic that these players are, are relevant to the overall case is speed. And I think that means that... Um, it's helpful to know the local court, maybe know the local judge, maybe understand the, the practice there, because not every court's going to turn on a dime and have you rush in to preserve your case from being sucked into the MDL. So speed and familiarity with local procedure, I think, is one of the sort of unwritten themes that's going on, you know, um, behind the scenes to keep these cases in state court. Okay, so looks like the fail-safe route for plaintiffs to stay in state court is to have the case brought by the attorney general or have a major defendant in their state. Is that, am I understanding that right? Yeah, well, so you've touched on the major defendant, which we, we already said. If you, have, if you have a major defendant in your state, you should be able to argue pretty clearly that there's no complete diversity and keep it there. Um, and, uh, but, uh, there's an asterisk after that. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> some, um, yeah, some very 
there's been some very creative uh, defendant um, uh, memorandum writing which have raised um, at least two theories that, would, that, that argue against what seems to be a watertight um, reason to stay in, 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 uh, in, state, in state court. And uh, so, for example, as I mentioned earlier, McKesson is a California company, and there was a case recently brought by a health group called CenterPoint, um, a California company. So they said it's California, and there's a California plaintiff, a California defendant. This is a state court issue. Um, the defendants argued, well, that may be true, but they raised something called the federal person argument. And there's a, a statute that says that if you're bringing a case against an instrumentality of the federal government, well, it has to be litigated in federal court. Okay, that seems to make sense. So their argument, which I, the, 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 the inventiveness of their argument is that, well, some of the, uh, some of the opioids that were, that were sold in this jurisdiction were sold pursuant to federal contracts with the Veterans Administration and the Bureau of Indian Affairs or something, something along, you know, a, a tribal entity. And so, well, that, those are federal entities. So this is, you're basically, if you're suing us, then you're suing the federal government. They're the ones that wanted to buy these, you know, that directed the purchase of these opioids. So this is a, a, federal, a federal person uh, lawsuit, and it has to go to, um, to federal court. Um, I haven't seen the outcome of that yet, but I do give them high marks for um, creativity. Uh, a similar tactic uh, is something called federal question. So even if you can't identify a federal person um, within the wrongful activities that the plaintiffs describe, um, maybe you can argue that what's really going on here is a federal question. And so I think I saw a Texas case where there's an in-state uh, complaint and it names I don't know, nine different state law causes of action. Nothing federal whatsoever, not RICO, nothing. But in the course of their, I don't know, 200 pages of their complaint, they reference that the distributors failed to abide by federal standards issued, you know, promulgated by the DEA that requires them to alert the government about suspicious orders. When you have millions of doses of opioids going into some small town in West Virginia, the government should have known about that. They should, and they're required. The distributors are required to, to uh, alert them to suspicious orders. So the defendants are arguing that the mere mention of the fact that there's a federal requirement to notify the DEA about suspicious orders converts this whole thing into a quote capital F capital Q federal question, and it's got to be removed to, to federal court. So um, <laughs> those are those are both um, pretty inventive. Uh, um, tactics, and you know, we'll see where they go. So, right, and that's and it, just in the first, you know, first small group of cases. So, right, really right, yeah, and and I guess just to just to pause for a second. I mean, we haven't really even gotten seriously into the substance of everyone's argument. Like, we're still like just to just to emphasize, like we're still just trying to figure out what court everyone needs to be in. I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here, right? So this whole jurisdictional issue of remand and removal, I mean, it's kind of its own sideshow, like along with all the the skirmishing about causation, preemption, false claims, you know, like there there are all these other issues that we also like haven't even delved into. Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. And it's, uh, that's why it's so engrossing. And at least to me, you know, really, really interesting and, and makes it 
easy to want to be involved and, and stay, you know, informed in it, about it. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a three ring circus. We've only got right. <laughs> we've only got one ring started. So yeah, and there's there's way more to go. Uh, so aside from the litigation, yeah. which we've we've definitely we've talked about exhaustively here, um, like what other yeah. what other items are there to discuss? So like, I'm I'm just thinking of public health well, and sort of remedial issues. Oh yeah, exactly. Um, so I uh, uh, I do I do you know provide our members with, with lots of information about litigation, but I've also looked at and, and mentioned and sent out documents about public health issues like um, how to best attack the opioid crisis at the ground level. There was a very interesting article recently in the New York Times called "How to Spend a Hundred Billion Dollars." attacking the opioid crisis, and they asked a whole group of public health specialists, doctors, sociologists, academicians, some politicians to come to try to get a consensus, and it's quite a detailed study, and I, I won't go into all the nuances, but their, their general reaction was that treatment is the most important thing, and cutting off supply, like you know, putting opioid dealers to death, was really way far down, down the list of uh, priorities. Um, I think they, they talk about things like providing naloxone to first responders and making it available over the counter, which it now is in, I think, 47 states where you can go in and buy this, this, this stuff that will, you know, reverse a, uh, an opioid, a heroin overdose. And then, obviously, more treatment, more community centers, kinds of things to keep people away from the despair and conditions that make them, you know, take opioids to begin with when they don't really have any pain. If you, you know, obviously most of the people that are taking opioids had nothing to do with, with, with pain conditions. It's an, it's an addiction. So, and then there have been some interesting proposals at the state level to reduce the availability of opioids. I think Nebraska, Illinois, Tennessee, and other states have recently passed legislation limiting the amount of opioids that a first-time patient can receive. You don't just walk in and get 90 days worth of opioids, you know, for your um, bunionectomy anymore. It's uh, <laughs> you get <laughs> you get three days or five days or seven days. Um, so right. that's that's a beginning. Although to be fair, um, people are concerned. People who really need opioids are concerned that these kinds of restrictions, you know, will impinge on their legitimate needs. And the AMA is somewhat up in arms about sort of knee-jerk reactions to limited. Um, but so there have been, there've been um, a lot of public health issues that um, I have looked at and have brought to people's attention. And my goal is to, you know, provide a lot more information and maybe have some public health experts um, weighing in in, in, the, in the future. So. Sure. Well, I mean, what didn't Judge Judge Polster, I think, maybe mentioned something about more like, like not just lit, like using different policy solutions and not just litigation to to tackle this issue. Is that am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, he mentioned uh, in during one of his very earliest sessions, he had he heard testimony from a Stanford Ph.D., psychiatrist, psychologist, medical doctor, I think, named Anna Lemke, L-E-M-B-K-E. And I've just finished reading her book called Drug Dealer, MD, and it's a description of how doctors unwittingly, you know, came to be drug dealers, basically, handing out too many opioids. But the point is that Judge Polster was interested in hearing from someone like her and not just lawyers, and I'm sure he's heard from other people. So, um, 
because I guess I mean it's obvious that we'll be successful if we if we the municipalities are able to obtain recovery. But then the question is, well, what do you do with it? How do you deploy it? And what do you do in the meantime? Um, so it's clearly an area of of interest to Judge Polster, and and it should be for for us too. Sure. Well, and just in terms of Judge Polster's like focus on policy. I mean, and maybe it's not a focus to a large degree, but do you do you think that's like within his role as a judge to really take that into account? Like do you think that's appropriate or uh, like what like what's your sense of of how how much he can uh, he can really do with that? You know, legally I don't I don't think he's going to prevent defendants from raising um creative uh motions to dismiss and plaintiffs from arguing everything under the sun, but I still think that kind of responsible sort of moral vector, <laughs> if you want to call it that, is mm-hmm. um, useful in today's society to have somebody who's at least voicing that there's a bigger picture out there and we're really trying to right a wrong and, you know, and solve a problem. So I, I can't give it any particular legal or even political significance, but it seems like um, it, it endows the entire process with a little more gravity and, um, you know, solemnitude, which I think is, solemnity, which I think is, um, is important. Right. I mean, and, and this really seems to be sort of a, an issue that, that involves a multidisciplinary approach. Um, and maybe to that end, could you just talk to us a little bit more about what IMLA is doing with respect to the opioid crisis? So, I mean, obviously these podcasts are a great example of, of ways that we're, oh, yeah. we're, um, we're involved well, in this. Yeah. First of all, you get credit for the IMLA podcast. You know, I don't know <laughs> if people you. listening to this one know that you do bunches of other ones and webinars. I know you've covered sanctuary cities with, um, with my colleague Amanda Keller and keep you know, our members up to speed on that very important issue. In terms of the opioid crisis, IMLA has been really active in keeping our members informed. Like I mentioned earlier, in November of last year, we formed this opioid litigation work group, which I lead, excuse me, and I host a call-in every two weeks. And the number of people that have to call in uh, to discuss and listen uh, to issues involving the opioid uh, litigation has just continued to to grow, and so I think we have about a hundred municipal lawyers that call in, maybe more, from about forty different states now to listen to what's going on. And um, I try to keep the group apprised of the latest developments in the MDL. There's there are already I think six hundred documents in the MDL docket, and I think I've read just about all of them. I didn't realize <laughs> that uh, the Pacer. The PACER database is available to anyone, but you've got to pay 10 cents a page, up to three bucks a document. So I'm, I'm definitely um, spending a lot of money looking at, um, or IMLA is spending money looking at these documents <laughs> and trying to discern which are important. Um, yeah, Eric will read the documents so you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so I try to send out in advance of our calls an explanation of what the most recent action has been and what the salient points are in some of these orders. And then also from various state uh, actions, Oklahoma's zooming ahead, for example. I try to send out, you know, data about all of those things, especially I'm reliant on our, our wonderful members to, to send documents in. Um, we've had on the calls some leading MDL lawyers describing how they see things. Of course, they're interested in enrolling more uh, municipalities in their uh, 
you know, to use the services of their firm. That is not the purpose of these calls, and I try to, to limit that aspect of the call, but I think it's useful to hear from these leading-edge people that have a seat at the MDL table. And then we've had some important legal scholars like uh, Dr. Shemarinsky um, talking about jurisdiction, and then we have all the most important orders and complaints and motions and articles and so on in an IMLA Dropbox where uh, members can uh, access them. And um, on a personal level, I wrote a, uh, a, about a 10,000-word article called um, Too Much of a Bad Thing in Municipal Lawyer Magazine in March. And I think people, it's been you know pretty widely disseminated. Um, in April, I spoke on the opioid issue at the National League of Cities Conference and also at our own IMLA conference. And later this month, in late June, I'll be in Orlando speaking at the Florida Association of Counties meeting about opioids. So um, I think we're doing a, a pretty good job for a small organization at you know helping our our members who have a lot of other responsibilities you know to keep aware of what's going on with um, with the opioid litigation. Well, and I, I would agree. I think we're doing a pretty good job. But I mean, you know, we 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 both obviously are, are pretty biased. Um, if you if you have any thoughts <laughs> on on things we need to do, you can always email us at info at imla.org. So again, that's info at imla.org. If you have any any thoughts on on other things that we need to be doing with regards to opioid litigation or anything else that you can think of, let us know. And IMLA will endeavor to keep uh, keep you up to date on all of those things, including updates on this podcast on down the road. And obviously, Eric, if you're up for it, we, we'd be happy to have you back. Oh, sure, Kaylin. No, thanks a lot. It's my pleasure. It's uh, very interesting. And I'll be happy to come back when there's uh, more to talk about. Great. Well, it looks like that's all the time we have for today's session. So thank you, Eric, so much for joining us today and for keeping us up to date on the municipal opioid crisis. And we'll talk again soon. Okay. Take care.